And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the, in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and, uh, and on, on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This morning we're going to open back up into the first chapter of Hebrews. And what we encounter is one worthy of worship. The worthiness of Christ. The radiance of Christ in the glory of God. And um, it is... uh, Simultaneously, one of the most exciting things for me to be able to preach on and one of the most terrifying because there is, it is not possible for me to even kind of do justice to the, the worthiness and the radiance and the glory of Christ. It is just, we have no human means uh, to communicate in part because we don't yet grasp it, and in part because every means we have of communicating is fallible when it comes to communicating who our infallible God is. And so we'll do our best with the, the counsel and help of the Holy Spirit, uh, and my hope and prayer is that um, this morning that uh, Christ is so elevated in your in your view and your mind and your heart that you are just completely captivated with his glory and presence let me begin with a a word of prayer father we come before you and ask for your help this morning as we open your word and we ask for you to to um for you to lead us into truth, to give us understanding, to increase, uh, Lord, our our knowledge uh, and understanding of, of who you are, to have our um, our perspective of who our Savior and Lord is, to be expanded, to more accurately reflect um, who He is. We thank you for your words of truth. And we pray that, I pray, Lord, just for every person here, that, that your word would find um, a place to root within them. 
that the soil on which your word lands would be fertile soil today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll read a quote to you to start off with. True worship does not originate with the need of man, but with the worthiness of God. Quite often it is said today that it really doesn't matter what one believes. It is only important that one believes. Such a philosophy indicates that the object of worship is not significant, but that what really matters is only the act of worship. Well, Jesus heartily disagrees with that philosophy that it's not a matter of whom you believe in uh, or believe but uh, that the idea that it's just a matter of that you believe or that you worship. In fact, in John chapter 4, verse 19, I'll read it to you here. Jesus has an encounter with, with a woman who is really an outcast and has some understanding uh, of, of um, Scripture. Probably just enough to be dangerous, really. And in John chapter 4, verse 19, it says, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where our people ought to worship. And when, when she says that you say, she's uh, identifying herself as belonging to one people group and Jesus as belonging to the Jews. So you, Jews say this, not that Jesus had explicitly said this necessarily. Um, And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus, His point, as it relates to the object of worship, is that the object of worship matters entirely. The Father, in fact, is seeking such people that would worship Him in spirit and in truth. So that's what we want to do as we gather today, is to worship God in spirit and in truth. Not to walk away just having felt better that we showed up and worshipped something. That we added some spiritual dimension to our life that fills out, you know, um, our personhood somehow, but that we came to worship the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Savior, Jesus Christ. There is no one else, as we read in Revelation, who is worthy, but only Him. And so as we um, open up here in, in Hebrews today, again at the beginning, um, keep that in perspective Because Hebrews is entirely concerned with the worthiness of Christ. 
uh, it from beginning to end illuminates the worthiness of Christ. I love this. There are, there are certain passages in Scripture that just, uh, my, my, I don't know, I just, I just amp up when I get to certain passages because of how clearly and explicitly it illuminates the glory of Christ. I think of Colossians chapter 1. I think of Philippians chapter 2. I think of John chapter 1. I think of Revelation 21. I think of these, these portions of Scripture that, I mean, all of Scripture points to the worthiness of Christ. But there are certain passages that just do it so explicitly that you, it's just in your face. You can't deny it. You either have to deny the Scriptures and deny, and deny Christ of, of, of any goodness or godhood at all, uh, or, or you have to believe it. It doesn't leave room for, for kind of somewhere in the middle thinking Jesus is a good guy and, and we need to follow his teachings. He, he's either crazy, he's a liar, or he's God. And we're left with the decision to make about that. And Hebrews presents... Jesus to us in such a way. Let's uh, look at the first few verses of, of Hebrews. Uh, we're going to start with verse 1. We're going to um, read through verse 4, but we're going to focus in on verse 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. As we discussed last week, it's important for us to remember that Hebrews is written to a predominantly Jewish audience, Jewish believers. So the context for which they approach this epistle, um, this letter, is, is one of an understanding of the Old Testament. Um, the, those, the stories of the Old Testament, the prophets, uh, they, they, what we went through in Exodus that would have been really ingrained in them. The account of what God did to rescue them out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, to miraculously bring them out of Egypt and preserve them uh, through the desert. Um, And um, in so many ways how God had been faithful to his people. And also they would have understand the promises that God made along the way. And, had, and would have been familiar with how he was faithful to fulfill every promise that he had given. And so there were some promises yet to be fulfilled that they would still be clinging to, waiting for the fulfillment of those. And that would be the context by which they approached the, the hearing of this, um, this letter being read. And so um, I'm hoping that we can pick some of that context up as we go through so that we can have a fuller understanding of our passage today. Verse 3 starts out that he is the radiance of the glory of God. 
There are some translations, I think, that use the word reflection, which I think gives us a very wrong idea of what this passage is communicating to us. Um, When we think of Moses coming down off the mountain, we think of the reflection of the glory of God. Remember, Moses met with God. He came down off the mountain, and his face was glowing so brightly that the people couldn't, couldn't take looking at him and being in his presence and so he covered his face and that was uh, uh, the reflection delayed by the glory by an encounter he had with God on the mountain so he encountered God on the mountain comes down off the mountain and still the reflection of the glory of God is is shining off of his face so brightly that the people can't stand to look at it what does that say about the actual glory of God Because Moses didn't possess the actual glory and radiance of God. He only reflected it. Just as the moon only reflects the light of the sun. The moon in and of itself has no illuminating value to it. It can only reflect another light source. And so was Moses. But Jesus is not like the moon. Jesus is brighter than the noonday sun. He himself is is the source of light because he himself is God eternal. In fact, what, what is being communicated, remember, to a predominantly Jewish audience here, when it says he is the radiance of the glory of God, what would come to mind? We just went through Exodus. What things come to your mind? When, we, when, when, I, when you're told that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and you think back on, on our journey through Exodus, what things stick out to you? How about Exodus chapter 13? I think you guys know where Exodus is, so go ahead and flip back there. Pretty confident that those pages hopefully got dirty in your Bible over the last couple years. Exodus 13 verse 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Flip over to Exodus chapter 24 verse 16. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. And then flip over to Exodus chapter 40. Verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from a, a, over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, 
Then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up, for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is the glory of God here in the pillar of the cloud and in the pillar of fire, God manifesting His glory among His people. So when we read in Hebrews to a Jewish audience here, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, we should start making connections that this is just not just some prophet God sent. This is no mortal man in our midst. This isn't a good teacher. This isn't just the best rabbi who ever lived. This is Son of God, God eternal. God become flesh and dwelt among us. God become man and made His dwelling among among mankind. The fulfillment of God's promise for a Savior, for a Messiah, that He would be our God and we would be His people. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. And it says He is the perfect the exact imprint of his nature. Um, so Jesus is a perfect representation of, of God the Father because he is in essence and nature the same Yahweh of the Old Testament. Who was and is and is to come. In fact, in John chapter 1, verse 14... Uh, we'll get more into that uh, exact imprint here in just a second. John chapter 1, verse 14. I think we have it up here. Oh, actually, I'm going to have you look those up. That's why I did that. Because I know you know where the Gospel of John is, and if you don't, let's learn. A few verses here we're going to hit real quick. We're going we're gonna to actually go through quite a lot of verses because I want you to see today, my hope is that Scripture speaks with one loud voice on who Jesus is. And I want you to see the unity of the voice of Scripture today in terms of who is Jesus. Because who Jesus is, it, it matters for every single one of us how we answer that question. There are, there, there are a few very important questions that we're going to answer throughout our lifetime. Uh, like, will you marry me? That's a big one. You know, even greater than that is who do you say Jesus is? Or who do you believe Jesus to be? Because that one affects eternity. John 1.14 as relates to the glory of, of Christ, says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Whose glory? His glory. The Word, the glory of the Word and the glory of God. John chapter 12, verse 45 Jesus says, and he says this, this a couple of times here in, in John 12.45 and also in John 14.9, 4, 
uh, something very similar to it, almost identical. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. In John 14, he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That's a pretty bold statement. A very bold statement, in fact, for Jesus to make were it not true. So he's either crazy, a liar, or, or he is, in fact, who he says he is. Matthew chapter 17, though, Jesus pulls back the curtain a bit for his disciples that they would behold more of his glory. John, Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. So we often refer to this as his transfiguration, um, where, where more of his divineness gets to visibly shine through. Um, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. So an encounter with Moses and Elijah would have been something to write home about for these guys. But what is presented to them is that greater than Moses and Elijah is Jesus It would have been pretty fascinating to hear the discussion that happened after that. I mean, we know if you read through the, the passage there, Peter's flummoxed. He, has, he just doesn't know what to do. He's trying to think, well, i, I got to do something. And, and he tries to, to make some suggestions here. But really, all that needs to be taken in here is that the glory and the radiance of Christ. And f- Hebrews goes on then to say in verse 3 that he is the exact... Imprint. Of his nature. The nature of God. Jesus is the, is the exact imprint. But not, not in the way that we would say maybe the exact imprint of a dollar bill. Um, or the exact imprint of your foot. Because in, imp- that, in that sense the imprint is not the real thing. The imprint is only a great likeness to the real thing. But what Hebrews is revealing to us through language to help us conceive what it's... I mean, it, Hebrews also, though it is the Word of God, is limited to the language that we have to communicate. Right? So the Holy Spirit can give us illumination, understanding uh, of what is being spoken here, but we're still limited to speaking to one another in terms that we can understand. And God has spoken to us in terms that we can understand. There are limitations with that still. We can't fully grasp who He is. And so as Scripture here reveals to us that Jesus is the exact imprint of His nature, it is revealing to us that He is the exact likeness imprint of God because He is God. In fact, in John chapter 1, that is what we encountered there. That the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That the Word was God. Colossians chapter 1, let's look at that. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and 19. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is, this is the point that Colossians makes, 
is He is God. If we worship Jesus in spirit and truth, we, wor- we come to Him and worship Him as God. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, didn't, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, this is, this is really kind of interesting when, we kinda, when you start digging into the language a little bit, because when it talks about the form, he was in the form of God and in the form of a servant, it, it uses the same word, but when it gets down here to being the likeness of men, it changes. It's a different word there. When it says, though he was in the form of God, it means though he was God and though he had all the attributes of God, though he had all the authority of God, though he had all the position of being God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Meaning that as he walked among humanity, he did not demand to be treated as that which he is. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, again, that same word that it represents who he is in nature and substance. That he is God and that he is a servant. But he, was, he humbled himself and took on the likeness of men. He became fully man, but not quite in the same way that he is his, in nature God. And he, he was, in fact, fully God and fully man, fully flesh, fully walked among us uh, as, as a man. But he, he is the one who was and is and is to come. He is the one we read about in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. He is the one John talks about in opening his gospel. In the beginning was the word. He is the one we read about in Revelation chapter 21. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Look at, uh, we already talked to John 1 1. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He is the image of God, not, not a replication uh, of something, not, a, not a, a reflection of something, but in fact, is that something. The reason that when we get to Revelation, and what, well, even, even throughout uh, the Gospels, we, when, when worship is offered to Jesus, he does not deny it. Notice that. Jesus is passionate about the Father. In fact, he says, I came only to speak that which the Father has told me to speak and do that which the Father has told me to do. So he's passionate about abiding in the Father's will. And so he would not accept worship were it not his to receive. And yet, he receives it. And when we get into Revelation... We see him receive worship. There is only one worthy of worship. There is only one presented to us throughout the entirety of the Old Testament who is worthy of worship, and that is God alone. 
And yet Jesus is presented to us in, in the New Testament scriptures as being worthy of worship. In John chapter 8, 58, Jesus just uh, really rocked the Jewish world with the, his statement. Um, he, says, he says to, uh, again, to his Jew, Jewish audience, he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Oh, this was, this just lit a fire. This was more than a spark to set off the tinder. This was, this was the spark, the tinder, and, and the diesel fuel. This was all of it together when Jesus said this. Because what he states is that Abraham was created... Abraham died, and before Abraham was created, and after Abraham died, I am. I am greater than your father Abraham because I made him. That's what's being communicated here. In other words, Jesus accepts uh, the statement here that he makes that he is God eternal. All right, as we continue on in in Hebrews, there is just, I mean, this opening statement in Hebrews is is just so full of of the doctrine of who is Jesus and answering that question. Um, The third thing here that we want to look at here, it says, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Previously there in verse 2, it says, through whom also he created the world. So we have Jesus, who we know John has already made that point in John chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus was there at creation. And there's nothing that was made uh, except that which was made through him. And so Jesus is creator God. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Um, it, It goes a step further there. Something implied really by Genesis and something implied by John's gospel but said more explicitly here, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. In other words, as, uh, as, as Dave um, prayed this morning, that um, he is creator and sustainer. So that which he created, he has the power also to sustain. As we look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, I think it's worth taking a look there. Genesis being the, the first book of your, of your uh, Bible there. Thus the heavens and the earth were, create, were uh, finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Uh, God created, and God rests um, because his work is completed. And it is not that it is not like, uh, you know, you're assembling a bicycle and you get done and you go. Whew. But this is a God who not only created, but 
through his word of power, but now also through his word of power sustains it. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 um, says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Romans chapter 1 is making the point that every single one of us, as we intake this world that we live in, it is glaringly obvious to us that there's a creator. So if we know nothing else about him, we know that there is a God who is a creator. And, um, and Romans makes that point, but here it says that, uh, that, that it's been, this point has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world because he continues to sustain it. He, he didn't just create something and abandon it, but continues to sustain it, and the heavens continue to declare his glory. Psalm chapter uh, or Psalm ninety one, verses one through six. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. Keep going here. Next, do we have verse four? Right. He will cover you with His pinions, and under His wings. You will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. Why do I throw this in here? Because God creates and God sustains. God creates man in his likeness and God sustains those who trust in him. It is by his word of power that he creates and it is by his word of power that he sustains. And here in Hebrews, the point that is being made of Jesus right off the be- at the beginning here is that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus gave himself a sacrifice for sinners to purify them and make them righteous. This is not a righteousness that we earn. It is not a righteousness that we can pursue and achieve. It is a righteousness that has to be imparted to us, given to us, uh, placed upon us by someone else who has that power to do that. So we, um, we go through this world as, as sinners And we will arrive at the throne of God as sinners unless something changes between our birth and our death. Unless something about who we are changes. And that change doesn't happen because we set new goals for ourselves, Because we've had some, uh, you know, uh, illumination spiritually speaking, um, or, or because we ended up being great human beings that the world thoroughly enjoyed and thought was amazing. But that change happens through faith in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
That's how you become righteous. It is through him who was sinless, who became sin for us, so that we would become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ, who was sinless, he came into this world and lived his life here on earth sinless so that he would be the perfect sacrificial lamb of God to be slain on behalf of sinners. You and me, all of us gathered here, represented in that. We all were... Um, Our Sunday best was filthy rags. That's the best we had to put on. Filthy rags because we are sinners. Unclean, unfit for the kingdom of God. Unfit for the family of God. And unable to change that. And so God sent his son, who knew no sin, to take our sin upon him at the cross to pay for that sin, to take upon himself the wrath of God against that sin, to pay the punishment for that sin, so that the ledger uh, that says we're in debt, that we're guilty, that, that, uh, that we have uh, something to pay for that for eternity, that that is wiped clean. So that the ledger before God reads, uh, this person is pure and righteous and may enter the kingdom of God and be called a child of God. Not a righteousness that comes on our own, but a righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 3 then says this, 3 verse 8 and 9, Indeed, I count everything as lost. This is the Apostle Paul saying this. Uh, as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, which it doesn't come from the law, but we can pursue that. That's the point that Paul makes is he pursued righteousness through the law and there, there, he, he came to find out there is no such thing. So not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So the righteousness of that from God depends on who you believe Jesus is. So whether or not you and I stand before God as either guilty or a child of God depends on is the righteousness imparted to us from God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, whom He sent for us. Have you trusted Christ? Have you placed your faith in Christ? Do you, in fact, grab hold of Jesus, believing that He is the only way for you to be made right with your Creator? Because He is the only means for us to be made right with Him. Jesus said Himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. No one enters the kingdom of God except through one door, and that is Jesus Christ, receiving him by faith. And when he made purification for sins, it says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews is later going to go into this, so I'm not going to go into this very much right at the moment, 
um, Hebrews is just, we're at the opening still. I know we're, we're a couple weeks into this already. I mean, we're just opening this thing up. But we're going to crack it open even further when we get into Hebrews and find out really what all is entailed in this little statement that says he became, uh, or that he made purification for sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The quick version is, uh, I shared with you last week, the priest's job was never done. It was, there was always more sin to atone for. And so there was no sitting down on the job. Because the job wasn't ever done. And when Jesus gave himself a sacrifice for sinners, the job was done. One payment for all people for all time. In fact, in John chapter 19, verse 28 through 30, it says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And this is while Jesus is on the cross. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What is finished? What is finished? The work that he came to do is finished. The sacrifice that he became for sinners, it is finished. That sacrifice was not just like the yearly sacrifice that had to be done over and over and over and over, generation after generation after generation. But He, the perfect Lamb of God, the perfect one-time sacrifice of God for all sinners, for all time, it is finished. And so, Hebrews says, He sat down at the right hand of God the place of honor. There is, there, th- this is a, an, a revelation that He is Savior. He is Lord. He is your, the suffering servant of Isaiah. Um, he is the one who became sin for you that you might become the righteousness of God. And He has shown Himself worthy of worship. Jesus is holy, righteous, creator, He's both our Savior and our Judge. His glory is the glory of God. Because He is God. I want to close with um, Hebrews chapter 12, which we're going to keep working towards. But sometimes it's kind of nice to uh, in some situations, flip back towards the end of, of what you're reading and uh, um, kind of know what you're working towards. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Come on, church, you know what this is from, right? We spent two years in Exodus. You're tracking a little bit, right? All right, this should remind you of some stuff back in Exodus. Remember, this is a predominantly Jewish audience, and he says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and, a, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. This is what, the, this is what uh, Israel did 
when God was speaking to them, they said, whoa, 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 we can't take it anymore. Just speak to Moses. That'll be good for us. We can't handle being spoken to by God. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. So remember when when Moses was called on the mountain, um, they were told, don't even touch this thing or or you're going to die. That's how holy of of an occasion this was when God God, uh, makes his presence known among his people and to Moses. And they, they just couldn't even take it. Verse 21, indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Let me just uh, exhort you with that word again. Wherever you're at, whatever's going on internally as you hear these words, whether you're a believer or not a believer, especially if you have not given your life to Christ, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. He's speaking through his word. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth back in Exodus. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Stuff of this earth, it's all going to be shaken. It's going to be shaken real hard like through a sifter. And there's only going to be some stuff that remains in the sifter. When God gets done shaking. And it's going to be the things of eternal value. The things that have a weight of glory among it. Therefore let us be grateful that we have received a kingdom that can't be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. So as we gather each week to worship. The name of Jesus comes up a lot. Because we aren't here unless he comes to be a sacrifice for sin for us. And so we gather a little picture, a little glimpse perhaps into Revelation 21 as as the elders gather, uh, as the people gather around the worthy Lamb of God to worship him. We gather to worship Christ, who alone is worthy of worship because he is God, who has laid his life down for us, and who beckons for you today to receive him by faith, that you would become a child of God if you haven't already done so. And if you have, 
then Hebrews says, let us be thankful that we've received a kingdom that can't be shaken. And let's worship God appropriately because he is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that you are, all that you've done for us through the sending of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we gather and in whose name we pray. We ask that you would, I ask this, Lord, for those who, who continue to um, keep you at arm's length, who continue to reject uh, this word that you are giving them. Father, I ask that, that you would, by some, some means, penetrate that barrier which, um, which has been erected. And, and uh, Lord, just uh, allow their heart to be pricked at the deepest place by the very Son of God. Lord, I, I ask that you would cause each one of us to be so captivated by the glory of our Savior and Lord. Uh, Lord, that all things, as the Apostle Paul said, just seem like trash. They just don't even hold a candle to the worthiness of Christ in our life. Lord, we, we thank you and praise you in his name. Amen. We come to our time of communion together where we honor Christ once again for the sacrifice that he made for us. The bread being his body and the juice.